Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, James Casina, and Jocelyn Gotto. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. Last week, we wrapped up the last of our House Church mini podcast series. And today, I'm here to tell you we're launching something really exciting and brand new. You know, we've always planned for this podcast to be an all-in-one devotional, something that encourages and inspires you with stories from the persecuted church and lessons that you and I can apply in our own lives. And so moving forward, we'll be releasing each week a different podcast. One will be a story from the persecuted church. One, a deeper insight or a message looking at the biblical relevance to the persecuted church and the normal Open Doors live conversation with a couple of bonus episodes thrown in here and there. Because over the last few years, we've been able to create wonderful relationships with friends all over the world, but especially church leaders here in Australia. You can expect in those bonus episodes to hear from world-leading pastors or teachers, artists and musicians, business leaders, and more than that, It's all accessible from your phone or at home. And so this podcast is for you, the all-in-one devotional. And without further ado, let's get into today's episode. My name's Joss and I'm part of the team at Open Doors and today I'm going to be reading to you from 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I have gained nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices when the truth wins out. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we will prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Hello, everybody. It is Mike Gore here. It's great to be with you. I'm really excited today as we get to look at the scriptures together and hopefully learn more about what it means to courageously follow Jesus and some tips tricks, tools from the persecuted church in, I guess, how to live out our faith in society and culture. To do that, I want to start by telling you about a conversation I had with Brother Andrew, the founder of Open Doors. He's, I guess, well known for the book God Smuggler, not so much well known for the fact that he's Dutch and he's direct. He's one of those kind of guys that he's wonderful to be around, incredibly insightful and, and deeply spiritual, but he'll also tell you exactly 
what he thinks. Brother Andrew, as we spoke, talked about his viewpoint on Islam, and he lives by an acronym. The acronym he uses for Islam is, I sincerely love all Muslims. And I want to tell you that I'm not sure that I do. It's the moment that I realized, for me, and I guess this role at Open Doors as CEO or, or whatever is that I look... I've only got two options. I can figure out how to live with that kind of love or, to be honest, I can find a new job. And today, that's what I want to do. I want to take you on a somewhat personal, vulnerable journey of mine in finding out what it means to either live up to or move on from the notion of sincerely loving all Muslims. But before we get into it, I want to start by fleshing out some of my underlying prejudices towards Muslims. To be clear, I'm not proud of these, but my sneaking suspicion is that some of you probably feel the same way. Several years ago, I remember getting ready to speak at a conference at Easter. There was 2,000 people there, and as I sort of got ready to go up on stage and speak to them, I started to get some, some notifications through on my phone, updates about an attack that was unfolding in a place called Garissa, Kenya. Al-Shababa, a local Islamic extremist group, had stormed a Christian university. And they proceeded to give Christians an Easter they would never forget in their words. And they killed 148 students. In fact, many of them, they lured under a false sense of safety and security from their places of hiding and then would kill them publicly and laugh at the fact that these Christians had come out of their hiding spots. I remember as I heard that story, I saw hate. I saw anger. I saw a lack of love, a lack of grace, a lack of respect towards God. And you know what? I saw all of those things in me. The scriptures tell us to bless those who persecute you. Do not curse them, bless them. And I think we can often get caught up, or I got caught up, in this misunderstanding of that notion, because we will say that, that the notion of blessing is only around give them good things or give them sort of lavished praise for what they do. No, no, it's an Abrahamic blessing. It's a desire that they shall be saved. Bless those who persecute you is actually, hey, can you have the heart to believe that they desperately need salvation in Christ? And in that moment and through those attacks, I want anything but that. I was furious that people would do this to Christians. And so, as I said, in that moment, I saw all of these emotions in me. Well, what about this? If you can cast your mind back, it's a few years now to 2015, April 29th. Myuran Sukumaran and Andrew Chan were killed by firing squad in Indonesia, one of the largest Muslim nations on the planet. In fact, I happen to be very good friends with Rob and Christy Buckingham from Bayside Church in Melbourne. They're people who pastored Myuran and Andrew. I remember speaking with Christy in particular about the night of the executions and hearing how the boys had walked to the firing range singing the song 10,000 Reasons, how they'd asked to speak with each of the men tasked with pulling the trigger to tell them that they forgive them. Christy told me that a spirit of Stephen fell on the jail that night and the men with guns, they wept as they lined them up in their sights. They looked at Christy and asked, will we be forgiven for this? And she was able to share the gospel with those tasked to kill my urine and Andrew. It was a tragic and emotional time for Australia, if you can remember back to then. Emotions throughout the country, they kind of oscillated from anger to frustration and everything in between. And the feelings of injustice, well, they were heightened within the church community because it just didn't seem fair they were killed. 
I mean, they'd started a church in the prison. They were teaching people to read, to paint, and in all sorts of incredible things. And I remember on the Thursday morning, the morning after the execution, as we here at Open Doors gathered for our daily devotions, there was this kind of solid, solemn mood over the team. I remember as I spoke with one of the guys on our team, I simply asked him the following question. James, if they had converted to Islam and had become Muslim, would you feel any different? Because what we're meant to be recoiling at was a death penalty. But I've got a sneaking suspicion that if they'd converted to Islam and were Muslim, most of us, myself included, would have all but pulled the trigger. What about the notion that you, me and ISIS, well, we're all created in the same image of the same God. And as crazy as it seems, Jesus went to the cross because of his love for you, me and ISIS. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying we worship the same God. But what I am saying is that they're currently separated from God and no one is beyond salvation. We often forget that God used Saul to build the church as well as Paul. In fact, Saul breathed life into the Great Commission. So maybe our prayer for ISIS over the last five or ten years as we've seen the war in the Middle East rage on should stop being, Lord, wipe them from the face of the planet and start being, God, bring your time of building the church to an end and convert them. But if we're honest, it's fear that makes us feel anger towards Muslims. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should casually gloss over the actions of ISIS or al-Shabaab, but isn't it funny how the actions of a proportionately small number of extremists, and I want to be clear, ISIS are a terrorist group who use religion to justify their cause. But isn't it funny how more often than not, the actions of a, a, a few seem to taint our view on Muslims in general. Some people tell me, no, no, Mike, it's just what Muslims do. But if we're honest... At the heart of responses like that, the underlying emotion, it's almost always fear. It's slightly tangential, I know, but having grown up as an adopted child in Australia throughout the 80s and 90s and experiencing racism my whole life, I can promise you, I am without doubt, that number one, people are scared of what's different, and number two, it will drive them to do unimaginable things. But for the persecuted church, the genesis of most instances of, of persecution is actually fear. In communist countries, it's fear that Christianity will grow and become uncontrollable. In India, it's fear that Jesus offers people living under the caste system freedom from a deeply ingrained and well-established cycle of poverty. And in the Middle East, it's fear of Jesus being the true son of God that results in ferocious attacks on the church. But what do we see happen in the face of persecution. Well, more often than not, we see the gospel grow, but not necessarily in a number sense. What you find is that when people are forced to actively choose Christianity, some will and some won't. But the ones that do, they become bold, they become passionate, they become courageous, and they become committed to Jesus. Under persecution and in the face of fear, the gospel more than often grows. But if you ever realised, the same is true for Islam. When people respond in fear and you try and control, conform or suppress Islam, tell me what happens. Well, people become more passionate. The media will tell you radicalised. And similarly to the church, there are some people who will turn their back on Islam, some people who passionately hold on to Islam, because the link between fear, persecution and growth, it is not only limited to Christian things. 
So when everything in culture is, is driving us to choose fear over love, how should we as Christians respond? I remember I just speak, finished speaking at a conference in Western Australia and was really looking forward to meeting up with a close friend of the ministries, a, a, a person who really just devotes so much time to helping the work of open doors in Western Australia. And as we chatted through life, ministry, family and God, well, the usual suspect came up, Islam. And I remember saying to my friend, well, one of the biggest challenges that I face personally at Open Doors is, is to not bring a message of fear into the Australian church. To be honest, it's one of the questions I'm probably asked most, particularly over the last 10 years. Well, what should the church's response to Islam be, Mike? But what I really think most people are actually wanting to know is, well, Mike, how do we stop Muslims? I remember saying to my friend that, well, Jesus taught the world to love, but it, it seems as though we've, we've kind of forgotten what love really looks like. It's as though we believe Christian love is like the stuff you see on Hallmark cards and the element of suffering, risk or loss. They just don't seem to be part of it. And my friend said to me, well, no, no, love is easy. It's written for us in the Bible. She said, 1 Corinthians 13, that's what love is. And I realized she's exactly right. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a wedding verse. It was written by Paul living directly under persecution to a church, wrestling with all sorts of things. Once again, looking back in my own life, I've let culture be my guide. Because 1 Corinthians 13, as we heard in the Bible reading, it says, Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. It never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance. Isn't that incredible? I've spent so many hours thinking about this passage in light of weddings. But the moment I start thinking about it in light of the persecuted church, it becomes to life. I mean, how do you live or how do you interpret this passage as someone living under persecution? More specifically, how do you and I interpret the passage in respect to Muslims, or for that matter, anything that stands in the way of our belief systems or our value structures? The way I see it is there are always two responses. There's fear or there's love. More often than not, our natural tendency is to choose fear because to tell you what, it's by far and away the easiest option and not only that, it feels better too, because fear, it's characterized by inaction, inflammatory talk, speculation, judgment, and more often than not, ignorance. But the thing with fear is, well, fear will only ever breed fear. So what's the other option? Love. However, the problem with love is, well, it requires, no, it demands a response. Love is characterized by action. And that, for us, is terrifying. Love is what made Jesus' walk on earth so profound. Instead of inciting fear, he challenged people to love. And well, look how that worked out for him. If you think about the church of that time and how they responded or accepted Jesus' challenge, they were some of his greatest accusers and individuals, people, to be honest, like you and I, constantly wrestled with the cost of love and what it meant for family, for career, for well-being, the disciples included. So how do you move from fear to love? Well, the only way you can make that transition is to start with hope. 
Because hope, it's the only thing greater than fear. It forms a bridge to change, a bridge from fear to love, inaction to action, no commission to great commission. The church's response to Islam has got to protect against fear and find hope, demonstrate love. Because despite what the media wants us to believe, Muslims, they're not all terrorists. I've had the privilege of meeting Muslims all over the world and in some of the most confronting situations. And to be honest, they're some of the loveliest, caring and most welcoming, desperately God-seeking people I've ever met. In most Middle Eastern countries and Asian nations for that matter, when people become disenfranchised with Islam, the question is not Is there a God? The question is which God? Which makes talking to a Muslim about Jesus far less confronting than talking to someone in our own family who is an atheist who denies the existence of God. As we heard in the Bible reading, a love that's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy or boast, it's not self-seeking or easily angered, it keeps no record of being wronged. A love that doesn't delight in evil but rejoices in truth, that always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes And it always perseveres. As I said before, we often read this at weddings and, sadly, leave it at weddings. But the moment you try reading this through any other lens, you read it as a response to fear, discrimination or terror. It becomes some of the most powerful words you'll ever read and some of the hardest to live by. Can you imagine just for a moment a society driven by this kind of love? As we begin to wrap up, I want to read you a story that I'm hoping you won't soon forget. It's probably one of the most gripping stories I've ever heard in my time with the persecuted church. But it's a story that's saturated with this kind of love. I recently spent some time with a man called Samson. He's from a Muslim background and used to persecute Christians severely. One day, as he was walking to work, he heard the audible voice of God call his name three times and ask, Why do you not accept me as God? Samson said, I told the Lord, Christians are deceived. They call you a God, but you are not a God. Then this audible voice, the Lord said, will you believe in God? And he replied, yes. And the Lord said, one day you'll meet him. What have you done for him? You pray five times a day. You need to say those prayers for me. He said, stop now in the street. Pray to me and I'll explain your prayer. The Lord then asked him, well, do you believe I am omnipresent? Which is bigger, the house or the chair? And Samson replied, well, of course the house. And the Lord replied, the earth and the sky, these are the table and the house is me. Because the earth is a support for my feet and the sky is a place of my seat. I am so bigger, so greater. So why do you only choose Allah? Samson told me at that moment, he felt the foundation of Islam was not strong. And every word from the Lord was like a hit into the foundation of Islam. Then the Lord said to him, Well, the dome you're praying to was created with a man's hands. And this is an idol. He said, I am a God of love. I came and died for you. This conversation went on for 40 minutes and got to the point where Samson told me he fell to his knees in the street and gave his life to the Lord. He then began walking from village to village, sharing the gospel and telling people that there is only one way, and that's Jesus Christ. One day, as he was walking to a village, he saw a Mujahideen coming, an Islamic extremist. He was carrying a knife and a gun. Mujahideens are known for their violence and especially their ferocity towards Christians. Samson said, I didn't want to share the gospel with him. Sounds a lot like me. In fact, I tried to ignore it, but the Lord told him, no, 
you need to say to him that I love him and I died for him. Samson tried to ignore it again, but he said, four times the Lord said to me, and so with great worry, I approached the Mujahideen. I began to share the gospel. After 20 minutes, the Mujahideen broke down and began to cry. He said, I've always been looking for a God who loves me. I am now a Christian. Samson told me how he would continue to preach the gospel from town to town, but people would often beat him until there was blood streaming from his face. After his conversion, his parents, relatives and local mullahs came together and they forced Samson, his wife and two children to leave. His parents told him, choose Christianity, you have nothing. Choose Muslim and this is your home. Samson said, I didn't know where to go. His father told him, well, leave now. I will not bless you, I will curse you. And Samson replied as follows, Father, everything that is mine is yours. The only thing where I disobey you is my faith in my God. And I pray that God will let me serve you until your last day. Listen to this. Samson said to his father, Today you're not casting me away. You're sending me to my ministry. For the next year, Samson would go to his father's house once a week and do all of the yard work. His family would give him no food for the whole day. At 4 p.m. each day, they would come, force him to sit on a chair, and they would collectively ridicule him, asking him to return to Islam. After 12 months of this pattern, Samson told me that his sister gave her life to Christ, and after 18 months, his brother did too. He tells me his parents are not yet Christian, but in Samson's words... They now protect him as opposed to persecute him. Samson eventually became a pastor and one day when he was worshipping in a church, a group of Islamic extremists burst into his church. They had guns and knives and were yelling, they'd kill everyone. Samson asked the congregation to hold hands and pray. And they began to say out loud, Lord, bless our nation, come into the nation and give us many ministers. The Mujahideen, the leader of the Islamic extremist group, entered the circle and began to beat Samson until there was blood streaming from his eyes. Samson said to the guy beating him, Brother, I love you because God is love. Jesus has died for you. Even if you kill me today, when you go to him, he will hug and accept you. The Mujahideen then pulled a gun from his side and placed it to Samson's head. He pulled the trigger three times and the gun failed three times. The Mujahideen and his army all ran away in sheer terror after that. Samson told me how the atmosphere in the church had turned to joy and to praise because the presence of God came upon them. They began praising and singing, went outside, but found another extremist group waiting for them. Samson began to preach again that only Jesus' blood can save. The Mujahideen from this group came and said, you've got one more week. Next Sunday, we're coming back to kill you. And every evening for the next week, this group would come and beat Samson. And every time he'll share the gospel with them, telling them that Jesus loves them and died for them. The next Sunday night came, and at 2 a.m., eight men with machine guns and knives came for Samson. They said, come with us. Samson couldn't see their faces for they were all wearing black headscarves. He turned to his wife and he said, my friends have come. I must go with them. But I'll be back in the morning. When you hear my voice... Then, and only then, unlock the door. His wife locked the door and Samson was taken. The terrorist said to him, Today is the last day for you. Jesus is not a God and he will not save you. They took Samson to a garbage tip and they said, Clean up a small area on the ground. 
They forced him to kneel down. The Mujahideen came over, grabbed his hair and pulled his head back, placed a knife to his throat. And they said, what do you want to say? And Samson responded, well, Jesus loves you and I forgive you. They asked him, do you accept Islam? And he said, no, I found the truth. The creator of earth, heaven and all mankind. He said, people create a religion. God created holy work. He started to pray, Lord, please reveal your work to my brothers here, salvation, protection for their children, and let them know that my blood is not on their hands. Please bless their families, and I forgive them. Amen. The Mujahideen screamed, are you a fool? We want to kill you, and you're blessing our families? Samson replied, I see you as my brother. Jesus said, pray for your family. The Mujahideen then said to him, go home. We'll come again later for you. Two weeks later, while Samson was checking the locks on the church, one evening, 30 people and two Mujahideens came back. They said, we want to talk. And I asked if Samson recognized him. He said, no, because I can only see your eyes. They said, well, we are those that wanted to kill you. And Samson replied, if you want to kill me now, please give me five minutes. I've been working all day long and I haven't had a chance to hug my children. I will not tell them you're going to kill me and I promise you I will come back. The Mujahideen said, we're not going to kill you, and began to tell Samson how a few nights earlier, 24 heads of their terrorist group had come down from the mountains at night and were walking along the road, ready to wreak havoc in the town at night. He said, as we were walking along the road, they were ambushed by the government. They fell to their faces, bullets flying all sides, all directions. He says, as we lay on the ground with our faces down to the ground, he said, we couldn't raise our heads because I'd be shot off. He says, but as we were lying there, we saw you and you came to us. He said, throw yourself into the water and you'll survive. And the two of us, we jumped into the river that was next to the road and we survived. They said the 22 other leaders of our group were killed. They said to Samson, number one, how did you manage to come to us? And number two, why weren't you shot? Samson replied, I was not there, but my God sent an angel who looked like me because I am his servant. He did it for you to come to me so I can tell you again that Jesus loves you and that he died for you and can give you salvation. The leader said to Samson, do you want to see our faces? And Samson said, you've stopped me and beat me so many times. Why do I need to see your face? God sees your face. The man said to Samson, that they'll never fight again. They threw open their arms and turned to the soldiers behind them and they said, this Christian tells the truth. We will accept Jesus. Samson said to me, Mike, God calls us to do things we never thought we could do. God said, we'll be light for him in this dark world. We will bring the light of Christ. He said, Jesus is that light. We need to give them Christ. That's why Christ came. We shouldn't hate people. Samson said to me, Jesus commanded us to love God and to love people, that everyone has both good and bad inside of them. He said to me, he himself has good and bad inside of him. But he said, I feed the good part more because the good part brings fruit. But he said, if I stop feeding the good part, evil will come out. We've got no right not to love people. We need to love everyone, even bad people, because they're a child of God. Love, it covers everything. And it's the only thing possible with God. 1 Corinthians 13 is so much more than a wedding verse. Samson's story, it's a perfect example of that. I mean, choosing love in the face of fear, a love that requires time, patience, courage, and trust. For the purposes, I guess, of this talk, I've used Islam as the example, but please, 
I don't actually want you to only hear that today. Fear pervades so much of society and culture. Responding in love, it's, it's not just something we need to do towards Muslims, but we need to do it towards each other horizontally within the church. I often worry that some of the greatest persecutors of the modern church are in fact Christian because the way that we speak about each other in other churches is so rarely is encouraging. We too often judge others on their actions, but we judge ourselves on our intentions. And the impact of that's almost always negative. We need to show the 1 Corinthians 13 style of love to our neighbours, to our work colleagues, to the homeless, to Indigenous Australians, to the homosexual community. But remember, love, it, it doesn't have to equal yes. It's a love that involves discipline, it involves character, it involves principles, and it involves grace. The unmerited, the undeserved favour of God. And where you and I, we're his agents of grace, we're not his judge, jury, and executioner. We need love to be a natural overflow and response to all relationships. A love that is patient, that is kind, that doesn't envy, that doesn't boast, that keeps no record of being wronged. It's not easily angered. A love that doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth. A love that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. We heard a story today, Samson's story, of this kind of love in the most extreme of circumstances. So what would it take for you and I to walk with this kind of love in our lives?